You're listening to Resurrection South Austin, a community of faith, learning to do life together in the goodness of God. For more information, you can find us online at resaustin.com. We are a few weeks into our series um, looking at the letters of, of Paul to Timothy, First and Second Timothy. And we're, we're asking the question, what does it look like to live a life that leans on with the full body weight of our lives and is fueled by the grace of God? How does this concept of God's giving actually fuel and function in our lives? To this kind of claim, a person who's setting aside their life to live on the grace of God, the world would say, who needs the grace of God when you've got a pile of cash, right? I mean, would anyone say that out loud? Maybe some would. But that's certainly the way things function. We live in a world where everything is given cash value. Time is money, whatever that even means, right? Everything's given cash value, even relationships, meaning. We hang meaning on our paychecks, purpose for our lives, things that are priceless. Somehow our world has ascribed price to them. Making money a master has really become bad news for us and for our world. It wreaks havoc on humanity. It's no good. It does damage to us, it does damage to others, and it does damage to the greater world. Don't get me wrong, money is a wonderful tool. Notice the scriptures didn't say money is the root of all evil, but the love of money is the root of all evil. It's a wonderful tool, but money is just a tool. That's all it is. And when we love money this way, we come at it squeezing more out of it than it actually can give us. We make something out of it that it is just not. And when we do that, it's not just a mistake like, whoops, made money a God again. Uh-oh. Uh, yeah, that's a bad mistake. But when we do that again and again, it actually shapes us into certain kinds of people. It forms us. We become something that we weren't before. It wreaks havoc on the soul. A tough question to give you an example, would be what does our bank account say about the condition of our soul? What does our bank account, the way we spend our money, say about what we love the most? This morning we're looking at 1 Timothy chapter 6. It talks about money. All of our readings do. And it also talks about Paul's dealing with something kind of behind money, which is the question of what kind of person are you becoming with your money? That's a huge topic, um, and I need a little bit of more of your time than I usually take in preaching, so I'm just going to give you a heads up now. This is probably going to run 10 minutes more than you, you all used to, you know, so, but if you think about it in Texas, this is like a short sermon still, but whatever. Um, but before we dive in, and the reason I want to sh share a little bit longer is because this is one of those topics that I really feel like has to be, um, I need to share some of my own story, my own life, just to put some flesh on this, and I just want to be transparent with you. So I'm using a little bit more time. But before we dive in, and so that all of you can hear me well, because even the fact that now we all know today's sermon is about money, we're all st either our heart rates are going up, or we're, our ears are shutting off, or we're kind of closing off. Before we jump in, I just need to point out a few things and name some things so that you all can hear me really well. First off, in what I'm going to talk about money, I am not inviting you to do something that Michelle and I don't do. We do this. Everything I'm going to share with you, we are already doing. So I'm not telling you to do something that we're not doing. And in our doing it, Michelle and I, we have found it's been challenging practicing generosity, but it has been so life-giving. 
defiant at times to the fear and the worry that we carry around, and we have found so much joy in it. Second, um, we're talking about money not because our church is in a financial crisis. We're doing okay, actually. That's not why we talk about money. Third, I recognize that many of you come from churches that whenever it's preached about money, what is immediately laid out is just guilt and shame about greed or the money you have. I'm not interested in doing any, any of that. There's actually no power in that. It's not the gospel. I want to preach the good news to you. I want to be a life-giving voice pointing you to a restful contentment that we actually find in the life of Christ. That's my goal here. Fourth, at Res, you should know this if you're new to Res and our Res family. This is a little bit of a living room conversation of our church family. Um, but I just want you to know we're not afraid of talking about money because talking about money isn't actually talking about money. It's talking about discipleship, the kinds of loves that we have and handing those loves over to the Lord. And so at Res, our folks are fearlessly open to the Lord and his teaching. We welcome God's voice in our lives. Our church is also very generous in things like this. We just did this prayer book drive and we knocked it out of the park. We got more than we asked for. You guys have generosity in your bones. You serve, you open your homes. I've seen the generosity of this community and I just want to say, I'm actually very genuinely grateful for that. I think it's awesome. How, how amazing to be a rector of a church like that. It's so life-giving to me. So I'm grateful for you, you need to hear that. Lastly, last point before we jump in. Um, I don't know who gives at this church, who does give, how much. I don't know any of that stuff. On an occasion, I get a big picture report about our financial situation. And why that's interesting to me is because it tells us a piece of the picture of how we're doing spiritually. And that report, to be honest, every time I've gotten it, and probably most churches, when they get it, that report reflects a lot of what's happening out in our broader culture, the way the world deals with money and is handled by money. Churches in Texas and throughout the U.S., most people really struggle with sacrificial giving. That's just kind of what those reports always show. Most Christians don't give sacrificially. Think about that. Christians aren't radically different from our broader culture when it comes to money and generosity. What does that say? I don't think it's because people are stingy or super greedy and they're, you know, I really don't think that's the case. I think it means either that families are facing severe poverty, like really hard challenges of finances, which if that's the case, you should come talk to me because that's, that's part of the reason why our church gives is to be able to relieve our church family and help when times of need. But for the most case, I think it's that families don't make it a priority or they don't think about it, or they're really avoiding a fear of scarcity. They don't want to invite God into their finances. What the heck is he going to do in there? It's already a house of cards as it is. I think it's a fear of not having enough and a fear of what God might do to our bank accounts. And I totally get this. I stand with you in this. I could feel it in my bones now. Like, man, that's, that's a touchy place to invite God into. But this morning, we're asking a different kind of question. How can we best use the wealth that we do have in the most life-giving ways? Can I ask that again? How can we use the wealth that we do have in the most life-giving ways? I think this is what Paul's getting at in his 
letter to Timothy. In uh, verse 6, Paul gives us a picture of two lives. He begins this whole section in chapter 6, illustrating two lives. The first is life-giving, a content person, someone at rest, because their desires have met their match in the gracious giving of God. That's this first life. The second life is a little bit more death-dealing, much more death-dealing, a life guided by a desire for money. He talks about this in verses 9 through 10. And in this person's life, it's not money, but the love of money that entices and drags them into all kinds of ruin. It's a life that assumes there's not going to be enough. I need to get mine while the getting's good. It assumes scarcity. It's a desire that leads to more desire, to more desire, and no satisfaction in the end. It's like a hamster wheel of wants. Sounds tiring, doesn't it? In verse 11, this is what I want to read uh, together, just to, just to focus on this one part of his letter. Paul urges Timothy to strive for something greater. Let me read this for us, verse 11. But as for you, man of God, shun all this. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and for which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. If we're really going to hear Paul's urging of Timothy in this situation, in this letter, we have to understand something critical. And Paul's already outlined, if, if you've been following us in 1 Timothy, you know that his entire message is enveloped in the message of God's giving, his grace. There's nothing more critical to understanding what Paul's saying here now than the fundamental truth of God's grace that has to be the context. We are crucified with Christ. And we are raised to new life in him. This is not something you have done, but this is something God has done on your behalf. It is the effect of grace. And that grace calls for a response. What are you going to do now? That you've been crucified with Christ and raised to new life in him. It calls for a response. And this is what Paul is calling for in this passage. Based on grace, Timothy, he urges him, respond in faith. Put up a fight, my man. Based on the grace of God and who you are in Christ, shun all of this. Put up a fight. Resist disordered desires. Take hold of what you already have in Christ. It's, you already have it, Timothy. Take hold of it. It's yours. That's all settled. Hold on to it. This is the basis of our generosity. Not some guilt trip, not some pressure from a church budget, but a God who gave to us first. That's where we start with generosity. It's a God who gave to us first and gave so much that his generosity is something that we want to get in on. It's that good. It's so much better than the life of fear and scarcity that we have gotten so accustomed to. It's a new kind of life that has taken hold of us in Christ. A life content and in actually enjoying the goodness of God. Doesn't that sound restful and wonderful? It's beautiful. When I was about 25, a pastor of ours approached me and said, he sat down, I had no idea what we're talking about, and he said, Sean, I noticed that you're growing as a Christian in every area of your life, but money, you've never given to this church, what's up with that, man? Oh, you should have seen like the internal war in me, the defensiveness that immediately arose, 
I know that he was talking to me in love. It was a buddy of mine as well. He was talking about the practice of tithing, which is, is we're going to talk about in a second, taking 10% of your gross income and giving that as an act of worship to the Lord. And this pastor, when we sat down and talked about this, he was essentially asking me, you give, Sean, from every other aspect of your life, but this, why? God, you can have all this, not this. Why is that? I knew in that moment that God was doing something. He was already at work even before we had that conversation. And if I could back up and show you the years up until that point, I had argued my way through so many like really pristine, very tight arguments about why God was welcome into my life in every area except for this one. I had the best arguments. Paul talks about them here, all of those desires, that the, the, the various desires that we get dragged into. I know those, y'all, better than anyone in this room. I get it. I, I picked my undergraduate degree by going to the engin- engineering department and following the chart that showed the greatest salary in engineering and said, that's what I'm going to do. I get it. Trust me. And here I am, a priest, you know, so that's a long story. That's a different, that's a different sermon. I wanted to share with you some of my greatest hits, can I? Of those, 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 those narratives and those excuses, those things that kept God out of my giving. Number one, I just have like, I have five of them, they're real quick. Number one, I would say I don't participate in the, I, I don't uh, participate in the community much, but I work a lot so that I can give a lot. I've heard that one before in myself, which believes the lie that God actually needs your money in order for the church to do well, for the kingdom to continue, that it's actually built on your hard work. He's like, really, don't come to church, stay at work, earn a lot so you can give a lot because we really need it. That's, That's not right. Second one, I serve a lot because I don't have a lot to give, which believes that the only worthwhile gift is a big one. But 10% of very little is always a lot. The third, I have debt that needs to be paid off first. I'll take care of that, and then I'll move on to giving, which believes that generosity to God doesn't come first, but comes after other masters, other desires. It's unwilling to sacrifice. Here's another one. It's not money, but the heart that really matters. I hear what Sean's saying. It's not money. It's the heart that matters. God knows my heart, which believes that one knows their heart better than God does who invites them to give precisely because he knows their heart. Fifth, to other good causes I give, but not to my church, which neglects and doesn't take seriously the unique role of the local church in God's mission in the world. Man, I I still feel the pain of these in my own heart as I say these. These are like deep dives into Sean's own soul. There it is. When our pastor sat down with this, all of my defenses began to kind of unravel. And they started to sound less like good reasons not to give and more like my heart's last-ditch effort to just avoid all, all pain here, all sacrifice. My heart was afraid. It sounded less like good ideas and more like fear. But God was at work. And I had to be open to that work. So Michelle and I, we started figuring out how do we begin to give. We couldn't do 10%. It would just break us. And so we started with something, something small, 3%. And we kept praying and growing and trust and saying, Lord, help us. We, we actually do want to make this a priority in our, our life. 
And I got really excited realizing that I actually had to reorder my real life arrangements in order to make this a priority. Conversion was happening in a way in my life tangibly that hadn't happened before. It was fascinating. It became exciting actually. Through the years, our family tithed when we had a lot. And when we lived under the poverty line in grad school, we tithed. And it was always a lot. It always felt like a lot. It was always for us an act of prayer. Lord, you know our needs. Especially when we're full of worry and fear. Tithing always called us back to trust. To not be afraid. That's how it's worked in our lives. That pastor, his message was, it reminds me a lot of the message uh, that we hear from the prophet Malachi in the Old Testament reading from this morning. Who approached Israel and exposed their lack of trust in God. Keeping wealth for themselves and not obeying God to give it up in trust and in worship. Can I read this part? This is like, it's about as sharp as it gets, folks. Malachi chapter 3, verse 8. Will anyone rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how are we robbing you? In your tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me. The whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, so that there may be food in my house. And thus put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. See if I will not open the window of heaven for you and pour down for you an overflowing blessing. Life that God gives with his grace is the life of a storehouse kind of God. He's not stingy and afraid like us. It's hard to imagine actually, isn't it? This is a storehouse kind of God who opens up the window of heaven to pour out this, these gifts upon his children. A God who says, try me. Rarely does he say, test me, does he? But this is a God who says, try me. I dare you. See if I won't open up the storehouses of heaven upon your life. Just try me. Trust me. Isn't that what we have in Christ? Even before we have tried God, he has already opened up the storehouses of heaven on us in Christ. Pouring out upon all flesh, the debt of all debts, paid and clear, and the forgiveness of sins. Isn't this why the church erupts in worship? Because of what they've received in this life with Jesus? Returning these good gifts that God has given them back to him in praise. All of this is yours, Lord. The, the earth is yours and everything in it. And so it feels most human when we receive those good gifts and respond, saying, Lord, take it back. It's all yours again. He's the one who truly gives. Isn't that also the kind of life that we really want, the kind of life we actually desire? A life that isn't afraid to give, but realizes everything that it has is gift and then gives all the more? If we saw someone living like that outside of us, wouldn't we say how beautiful that is? That's Jesus, isn't it? Let's look at what Jesus teaches. We looked at the prophet Malachi. Let's look at what Jesus teaches about giving. He regularly invites people, first of all, to a radical generosity. If we think that the Old Testament is for the Old Testament and the New Testament things are different, Jesus has done away with the law. You should go to catechism class and learn. That's actually not true. But also, the kind of generosity that Jesus calls you to is way more than 10%, some sort of tithe. He always calls people to a radical kind of generosity, giving away all you possess, even to come follow him. 
But there's three times in Matthew and in Luke that he explicitly rebukes those who hold back a tithe or a tenth of their wealth. I want to read this for us in Matthew 23, 23. It says this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint, dill, and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. Listen to this part. It is these you ought to have practiced without neglecting the others. He calls them hypocrites, people who say one thing and do another, right? Because they sacrifice what is easy for them, in this case it's wealth, but not what's harder for them. They won't sacrifice that, which is justice and mercy and faith. And Jesus is rebuking them, those who obey part of what God commands while evading the other parts. It's not justice and mercy and faith or tithing. It is justice and mercy and faith and tithing. It's this image that Jesus is pushing us toward. You ought to have practiced without neglecting the others. Why? Because our Heavenly Father has plenty. Plenty of mercy, plenty of justice, plenty of faith to give, plenty of wealth to provide to us. So Jesus is inviting us not to live in fear, but to live in the abundant care of God, dependent on God's gracious giving, his over-the-top generosity to us. That kind of life is really beautiful, and it's exactly what we see when we actually look at Jesus. We see that life, right? A life completely in trust of God. When Jesus stood before the tempting powers of the earth, Paul says, Christ made the good confession still. In verse 13, it was a pure self-gift of all of his wealth, faithful to justice, God would soon deliver. The mercy it would pour out upon all people. The faith that the Father would extend to all people through him. Jesus didn't hold back a thing. And because of that, we are benefactors of heavenly wealth. He really is generous. That's really who he is. And even in the deepest part of his poverty, the deepest part of his descent, when he even screamed out to the Father, why have you forsaken me? He still committed himself to trust the, God's, the Father's provision. And what happened? The Father raised him to new life. Generosity again, three days later. Friends, isn't this the kind of people we want to become? Seriously. Don't we want to be Christians? Isn't that why we're here? That everything we have would be given to the Lord without abandon, without fear. More importantly, isn't it in Christ that we have all these things as it is? Isn't it Christ who lives in us now and not us driving our own ship, but Christ living in us? Ourselves been crucified. Christ lives in us. Church, you are that people. You are a people crucified with Christ. A people now come alive, resurrected with Jesus, set free to take hold of that life that really is life, like Paul says. So don't let the love of money stop you from having that life. Don't let the fear of scarcity hold you up from responding to God's grace, not only to God, but to others in generosity. Make the good confession before many witnesses. 
Don't let anything hold you up for that. And the thing about money is we could all say here, you know what, you're right, I'm convicted. In my head, I'm going to be generous. Or in my head, I'm going to give my money. The thing about generosity is it's one of those things that actually has to be given in order for it to be generous. It doesn't work in theory. It doesn't even exist in theory. And this is why so many in our church practice giving sacrificially. Taking those wooden tokens that are out on that table and saying, that's right, even though I pay online, this is like an act of worship. It's an act of generosity that I want in on. This is part of my whole life's worship with God. And can you imagine if we became increasingly that kind of people, inflicted with this generosity of God? Can you imagine what God would do through us? A fearless people? Can you imagine what would happen to see a whole community refusing to live in fear, but participating in the generosity of God's life? Can you imagine? That's my prayer this morning, friends, that the Lord would ignite our hearts in a new way and lead us to that restful contentment that we have in Christ and that you would be afraid of nothing as you pursue Jesus in your giving. You're listening to Resurrection South Austin, a community of faith, learning to do life together in the goodness of God. For more information, you can find us online at resaustin.com.